This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Marketing Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Marketing Matters here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Usually at this time, you'd be tuning in and you'd be hearing the wonderful voices and insights from my colleagues Barbara Kahn and or America's Reed, but they're not here today. You're stuck with me. I'm Pete Fader, the Francis and Paywan Cha Professor of Marketing right here at Wharton. Uh, and some of you might recognize my voice. I was one of the original hosts way back when, before we just saw that, that Barbara and Americas were just too talented. Uh, but I'm really glad to be back in the driver's seat today. Lots of good things to talk about. And I'm not driving alone. I have my, my co-pilot. Well, there's a bad mixed metaphor, but, but a really good co-host with me. That's Sarah Toms. She's the executive director and the co-founder of Wharton Interactive. And while she's usually based right here in sunny Philadelphia, today she's calling in from the beautiful state of Colorado. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Pete. It's so great to be here. How are you? I'm doing terrific. Always good to be talking to you and always uh, great to have a chance to share our story. Uh, let me set the stage on that. But first, just to remind people that Marketing Matters airs live every Wednesday, 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and this week, it's a very special episode, not only because I'm back in the driver's seat, but because it's Halloween. And as everyone's going around uh, asking for goodies, the the really cool people, instead of giving people candy bars or whatnot, they're giving out copies of the Customer Centricity Playbook. All the cool kids are talking about it. It's a brand new book that Sarah and I just co-authored. It was just published yesterday. And we're going to dive in and talk about the origins behind the book. We're going to talk about what we mean by customer centricity. We're going to talk uh, about why we're framing it as a playbook. So we want to tell the whole story about uh, about the book, about uh, what it is that we're trying to achieve. And you know what? We're not going to be alone. It's not going to be only Sarah and me. We're going to bring in two of the heroes, two of the people who help bring across the art and science of customer centricity, the strategies and tactics, the thinking and the doing. I'm talking about Dan McCarthy of Emory University and Royce Cohen of the Los Angeles Dodgers. We're going to be bringing them on uh, in a little while, and we want you to participate as well. I really, really want to make this a, a broad conversation because these ideas of customer centricity are so new, they're so different, they're so interesting, they're so uh, well, you need to talk about them. You need to ask about them. Uh, and, and, in fact, we're going to talk about how Sarah and I both became educated on this, and we want to help educate you as well. So the phone lines are open. Use them. Call us up at 1-844-WHARTON. If you like numbers instead of letters, that's 1-844-942-7866. Dial on in, and, and we'll talk about uh, your thoughts, your questions, your reactions about customer centricity. But but first, let's uh, just make a little bit about me and Sarah. So, Sarah Toms, what brings you to the world of customer centricity? Great question, Pete. So, for me, customer centricity really started when I became a tech entrepreneur. And back then, in the dot nine, you know, in the nineties heydays of uh, sort of the dawn of the internet. I started to recognize that not all my customers were the same. So I was working with a lot of uh, global corporations, mainly in the manufacturing sphere, building out CRM, uh, building all kinds of wonderful, uh, you know, productivity management, et cetera. And at the time, I didn't really know what to do with that information. There wasn't really a playbook, if you will, or a way to sort of action in my own business strategies what to do when one customer didn't act the same way to my goods and my services as other customers. So then fast forward to six years ago when I started at the Wharton School and I took over Wharton's Learning Lab, which creates simulations and experiential learning here at Wharton. And one of my colleagues put in my hands your book, Customer Centricity, and said, you really want to meet Pete Fader, not only is you know, his topic amazing and his expertise and thought leadership in this space, 
but he's also a sim guy. He loves creating experiential learning. He loves creating active classroom experiences for his students. He's going to be somebody you're going to love getting to know. And so I read your book, and I read it cover to cover in one sitting. And really what it did was it brought me back to my time as a tech entrepreneur immediately, and a huge light bulb went off. This is what I should have been doing when I was a business owner. And it wasn't just that you were saying, you know, there is difference, which I think every business person recognizes with respect to their customers. You were celebrating that difference, celebrating customer heterogeneity, and saying it's okay to treat your customers differently. It's okay to think about your strategies and your tactics and how you align your business functions to the varying value of your customer base. So that's why I love customer centricity, and that's why I was a convert before I even then became a partner of yours. That's great. It is a great story, and and you're not alone in that regard. There's a lot of other people who will discover that customers are are not the same, and 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 wants to build their business around those ideas. But it's it's so unconventional. Uh, it, you, when you're thinking it, you're thinking you're a weirdo. You know, how come no one else is is acting on this? So I, I'm sure that you had some of those feelings. I don't know if you ever discussed it with colleagues or, and, and what kind of reactions you got back. You know, before you found the book and started acting on it yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, I think basically what colleagues would do was we would just sort of, I mean, it was unproductive. We would just almost uh, complain a bit, <laughs> you know, like, oh, you know, Bob, he's a pain. He's, you know, not really bringing much value back to the, to the business, but, you know, he's, he's eating up a lot of our resources or, you know, whatever it might be. But we, we weren't very productive or strategic about recognizing those differences. So, that really is where the rubber hit the road for me with customer centricity is you actually not only should you recognize it, but you, you need to figure out a plan for what you're going to do with this information. So let's lead the listeners to the, the story that, that, that led to this book. So uh, as Sarah mentioned, that, that she developed simulations. Uh, it's one of the things that makes the Wharton School so great, not only because we have our dedicated channel, Business Radio 132 on the Sirius XM, uh, but because when we have just crazy ideas for things we want to do to, to make the, our, our classroom content more experiential, more engaging, we turn to the learning labs and they'll take our nutty ideas and they'll make them real. Uh, and that's what Sarah did with, with some of these customer centricity ideas. Uh, I have a full semester course on the topic, and at the very end, in the last two weeks, I developed, I, I dare say, with some humility but a lot of honesty, a really lame simulation, just some Excel spreadsheets that got some of the basic ideas across but didn't really do justice to the richness of the content that I had been covering through the whole semester. So Sarah helped build out this this great simulation, so good that no longer do we just view it as kind of the, the, the tail end of the customer centricity journey, but now we lead with it. So let's get people to play this game and understand some of the trade-offs and really uh, understand or, or ask tough questions about who are the right kinds of customers to acquire? How much should we spend on them? What about the care and feeding of the existing customers? Let's get people to, to face those decisions, try to make them as effectively as possible. And that's not only going to be very fun and compelling, but it's going to then open them up to want to dive in deeper and learn more and so on. So we got that simulation going. And sorry, you want to just, uh, we know it's, this program is not about the simulation, but you want to talk just a little bit about uh, what's happened with it uh, over the, the, the year or so since we launched it? Yeah, absolutely. So the simulation itself, um, so first of all, you know, I, I, I say this repeatedly, but I am incredibly proud of the simulation and what we were able to produce together, and with several other partners as well. You know, we brought um, several PhD students and designers and developers, and you name it. Uh, we we had an incredible team working on the simulation. I, I definitely want to acknowledge their contribution. the The simulation, since we launched it, um, we now are offering it through Wharton Interactive to other faculty around the world. And in fact, it's just being played at uh, the London School of Economics this week. And we've been helping a faculty with that implementation. And by tens of thousands of students, in fact, since, uh, since starting to offer it to everybody. What we've also been doing is uh, running it a lot more with our executive education uh, folks here at the Wharton School. And 
So what you just said there, Pete, was, you know, we used to run it as sort of a capstone, thinking about, you know, what, how to sort of tie up all the loose ends and really bring all of that theory and let the students really roll up their sleeves and put it into practice in the simulated experience. And what we've started to actually learn is that by putting them in the experience in the beginning, we're then able to sort of draw out all those lessons because now that experience is real to them and the lessons really are driven home even better. So that's it just the, the, the sim itself is taking off um, and it's just been incredibly rewarding to see uh, how it's become a huge success. And Sarah Toms, if people wanted to learn a little bit more about this awesome new simulation, how would they do so? They just need to go to interactive.wharton.upenn.edu, and on our homepage, if you scroll down a little bit, there is a link to the customer centricity simulation and also a way to get in touch with our team. And it really is a great point of pride for Sarah and myself, and even for, for the Wharton School as a whole. Uh, Sarah mentioned that it's being used over in, in London right now. We actually just wrapped up uh, probably the largest deployment of it right here at Wharton uh, in our Marketing 101 course with, with hundreds of undergraduate students. Uh, uh, they've used the simulation for years, but it's always been a very product-oriented one. Who do we sell the product to? And they just started using this customer centricity one, uh, and it was just—it was wonderful. I just had a dinner. I, I don't teach that course. I'm not involved with it at all. But just had dinner with a, a few students in the course, and it was just great to hear them talk about not only the, the the learning and the excitement, a little bit of the competition, but how much it relates to, how much it sheds light upon a lot of the things that they're seeing as consumers. So, so they're now starting to see the other side of it, uh, understanding that different kinds of companies would be seeing them in different ways, celebrating heterogeneity, as, as Sarah said. So, so the simulation's taking off. That's great. We encourage you to take a look. So how did we go from this computer simulation to this beautiful new blue book? Sarah, how, what, what's the, the, the story there? Oh, the story there is one I, quite frankly, am still pinching myself as somebody who was you know, able to be part of this incredibly exciting project and uh, partnership with you, Pete. I mean, it's just been um, so interesting intellectually, and then also has really drawn on my own expertise, which is partnering with thought leaders and figuring out how to kind of bring that to life in the practical space. So I actually remember the conversation so well. We were sitting there talking about, uh, we just wrapped up a program at Executive Education. We were sitting in the lobby there talking about how we improve the next time we do things, and you turned to me and said, you know, there isn't a book that goes into how to actually enact a customer-centric strategy that gets into all the nitty-gritty details, the way the simulation does, of what you need to do and what you need to think about and how you need to really put this into practice. Now, hang on a second, hang on a second, Sarah. Just a couple of minutes ago, you said there was a book. There was the, my first book on customer centricity. So what's the, the difference here? So the difference is getting into more of the specifics. So your first book really was helping folks convert their thinking and recognizing that, for the most part, folk, businesses are product-centric. It's all about pushing as much product to as much faceless, nameless customers as possible and driving that top-line growth and not really recognizing, well, are we selling to customers that keep coming back to us? Are we selling to customers uh, that are leaving after they've purchased once and they're gone? Um, so that book was really about why you need to start thinking about customer centricity. And this book, the Customer Centricity Playbook, is how to become customer centric. So it's really moving into the practitioner space. And indeed, and, and part of the story, as, as Sarah tells it, is uh, our objective was uh, to uh, not only get into some of the how, but to help people play this sim better. So part of it, we said, let's come up with a hybrid book where some of it will be kind of a uh, almost a technical manual for the simulation, and part of it would be the, the, just to, to elaborate on, on some of these decisions and how they fit together. And, and, and a lot of the things that we would cover when we would debrief the game with a group of students or executives, let's just kind of bring, bring it all in. So we, we kind of laid out a book that was a little bit of both. And then what happened, Sarah? So we were having a conversation with our publishers, our wonderful partners at Wharton Digital Press, 
And uh, shout out to Shannon over there. And she said to us, well, it's good, but it would be a lot better if we strip out the simulation and really round out the conversation about customer centricity from a playbook standpoint. There's enough meat on the bone here to really have a standalone book. And so, yeah, the first draft uh, and what you see today uh, really are not even close to the same thing. Indeed, it was. It was uh, 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 when when Shannon mentioned that to us, it was like, really, you don't you don't like what we did? You don't like our cooking? Uh, but she was right, and it was it was real clear that you can't just take two different books and jam them together. Uh, but more to the point, there was so much meaty stuff to be said about the how of customer centricity, uh, which tactics are you going to use when, under what strategic circumstances, and for which customers. And so it was great to have the, the, the chance to, to, to really flesh all that out, push the SIM aside. Uh, I, I like to believe that we still have two entities here, the SIM and this new book, that, that complement each other. So it, it's actually great to, to read the book while you're playing the SIM, but it doesn't necessarily tell you how to do so. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you agree with that, Sarah? I completely agree. And what I like is that, um, you know, again, just drawing on what I, my role here is at the Wharton School, which is really taking a deep dive into faculty research, understanding what they're interested in looking at and uh, studying, and then how do we now move that into the real world? How do, when you're making decisions, you know, it's not binary. You're not, it's not a one or a zero where you're flipping switches. So how do we build something that is incredibly realistic based on the research, based on the theory and the evidence, and, and then model that for a real-world application? So the book and the simulation, to me, are still very much linked, and there's you know, a, a large artery going between the two of them. Um, you know, if not, they're Siamese twins. Uh, so yeah, absolutely, they are, they are definitely linked and uh, complement one, one of uh, each other. And I want to dive into to more details. So when we talk about the playbook, when we talk about the how, I, I want to start talking about some of the specifics, like what, what do we mean by the how. But, but I also do want to uh, open up the lines here. If there's anyone who wants to call on in and, uh, and, and talk about their initial exposure to these ideas of customer centricity, that, that aha moment you had when you realized that customers aren't all the same and that you can actually do good business by recognizing and leveraging those differences, give us a call. The, the, the lines are open. It's 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. You're listening to Pete Fader and Sarah Toms on Marketing Matters on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Talking customer centricity, not just talking about the broad concepts, not just talking about the why, not just trying to clarify the differences between being customer and product centric, but getting into the how. All right, Sarah, tell us about the how. So what, 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 what do we mean by that? So where we really begin with the book is defining customer centricity and also trying to fix the common hell belief out there that being customer-centric is about being uh, great at customer service or being a servant to all the customers in scare quotes with the customer and really uh, thinking about your customers in a monolithic way. And so where we begin is really defining customer centricity as recognizing and leveraging the celebration uh, of customer heterogeneity. So that's where we start. Once you recognize that and understand it, the that's our launching off point to everything else. Would you agree with that, Pete? Absolutely. So, and, but that's kind of like first book stuff. So that's just kind of reminding people uh, of, of, of the basic concepts. In fact, I, we directly quote a, a lot of passages and ideas from the first book. But then when we get into the how, what do you mean there? Like, what, what are the, the, the key tactics that, that, that we dwell upon or that all companies should be dwelling upon? So there we are training business people's eyes to the fact that there are distinct tactics in play. Broadly speaking, you have acquisition, so the acquisition of new customers. And then once you have those customers on board, you have two additional tactics, one being retention and the second being development. And so 
understanding that these are distinct tactics is the first step in your customer-centric roadmap. And so when, when we talk about these things, let's face it, companies have been acquiring customers for quite some time. That's actually a pretty common business practice. Um, so what's our spin on, on customer acquisition that makes it different than what just you know any company would be doing? So what we are really pushing businesses to figure out and understand about their customers, their individual customers, are their various makeups. So we, we talk about their propensities, whether that be their propensity to stay, their propensity to refer others, their propensity to purchase, and to be upsold and, and cross-sold on, on your various offerings. So where we're talking about acquisition, we're, we're, we're speaking about really locking in and figuring out what goes into making up the customer lifetime value of your individual customers. So we do spend a lot of time, and that's why uh, our subtitle is Implement a Winning Strategy Driven by Customer Lifetime Value. We spend a lot of time going into how to figure out CLV, or Customer Lifetime Value. See, the basic idea that Sarah's getting to is that it's not enough just to bring in these faceless, nameless uh, creators of demand for our products and services. It's a matter of bringing in the right ones. And, of course, customer lifetime value is the overarching metric that basically says, is this a good customer or not? And that it's not a matter of just bringing in as many customers as cheaply as possible, which is something you would be doing in the product-centric world. It's recognizing those differences early on and recognizing that, you know what, it might be worth our while to pay a lot more money to acquire certain kinds of customers if they're that much more valuable than, than just average or, or lesser ones. So, it's, so that's the big spin on acquisition, that it, that it shouldn't be based on cost as much as it's based on value, on lifetime value. Uh, and we put these words out there, and there's a lot of people who say, yeah, okay, that, that, that makes sense, but they sometimes find it hard to actually follow through on it. So, Sarah, what, what are some of the, the barriers uh, that the companies find in, in being able to do a kind of a, a value-driven acquisition strategy? Well, one of the barriers is there's a belief that, you know, more is better. And thinking in terms of, you know, and we use these, this word, you know, spray and pray. We're going to just put out a broad message about our offerings, whether it be a product or a service. And we're going to assume that we're going to be able to, you know, attract many, many customers, to your point there, Pete. So what we actually talk about in our chapter on acquisition is understanding that you've got, you know, of course, the two-by-two two in play, where when you're looking at your broad versus your selective approaches to marketing and then tying that to specific tactics, so direct being that you know who your specific uh, folks are that you're targeting, indirect, you don't know, and, and really understanding when you're doing a broad direct or a broad indirect approach to marketing, what will be happening when you pull those customers in? What will be the heterogeneous uh, makeup of that customer uh, segment when they come in, to, in your door? Indeed. So it's, it's instead of just the spray and pray or, the, or the, the, the cost-driven, it really is starting to think about, are these customers we know, the direct, or are they uh, faceless, nameless now, but we'll, we'll quickly get past that once we learn about them. So it's basically just putting out a framework to take a lot of the different kinds of acquisition tactics that are out there. The problem is that with technology today, there's just so many different ways to acquire customers. It's not only shouting real loud and hoping that some show up through your door, but a lot of of lead generation, a lot of the look-alike methods that a lot of people will be doing on Facebook, a lot of uh, influential strategies and referrals. And without getting into all the details, heck, we don't want to give it all away. We want you to go out there and buy the book uh, to offer a, a, a comprehensive framework that will let you understand how these different kinds of acquisition tactics fit together. Uh, and, 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 again, at what times would you use certain ones? So that's acquisition. And we're going to come back and talk a little bit later on about retention and development and some of the other frameworks that, that we have in the book. But uh, we're going to move uh, towards a, a break right now, and I want to kind of um, uh, encourage all of you to, to stay with us because when we come back, 
we're going to be welcoming uh, another great friend, an artist and scientist of customer centricity, that is Dan McCarthy of, of Emory University. Uh, and, and Dan, both on his own and a lot of the, the research that he's done, as well as, well, in conjunction with me, uh, we've done a lot of things to try to take some of these aspirational ideas, such as customer lifetime value, uh, a lot of uh, ideas that a lot of companies would say, yeah, well, yeah, that sounds nice, but can we really do that? Well, the answer is yes, we can, and yes, we have, and yes, we are. We're going to have Dan McCarthy with us on the line to really to talk about the, the science of customer lifetime value, of customer heterogeneity, and even this, this new concept we're going after, customer-based corporate valuation. Dan McCarthy, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Pete? I'm doing terrific. It's always good talking to you. Thanks so much for taking time out on, on Halloween. What's your beautiful daughter, uh, Amaya, going to be dressed up as? Yeah, she's going to be a pirate, so we're uh, very excited to take her out for the, the one hour we've got before uh, put her to bed at like 7 p.m. <laughs> okay. Well, we don't want to take too much of your time then, because I know that that first Halloween is a really important one. But so is customer centricity. So, so just by a little bit of background about Dan. So, so Dan uh, was an undergraduate uh, here at the Wharton School and then went to work for a hedge fund for a while, then uh, came on back to get his Ph.D., not in marketing, but in statistics. But while here studying statistics and studying all kinds of, of just interesting, cutting-edge statistical methodologies, he realized that the application of statistical methods to marketing is a really, really cool area. And so he and I have worked on a number of projects, published papers on customer lifetime value, missing data problems, but in particular, the marketing finance interface. And, and Dan's specialty, he is the world's leading expert on customer-based corporate valuation. Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what we mean by CBCV? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be very happy to. It's, it's, this, it's basically it's exploiting an accounting identity that you know, people within finance uh, generally are very interested in what future sales and various profitability measures are going to be uh, in future quarters. And that's going to drive their estimate of how much uh, they believe a firm will be worth. And basically, the idea behind customer-based corporate valuation is to do exactly that, but just do it more accurately by, instead of just predicting sales in a vacuum, we're going to, to predict what the customers of those companies will do. So how many customers are we going to acquire in the future? How long are they going to stay with the firm? How many orders are they going to place? And how much spend are we going to be able to generate from each of those orders? Oh, and then there's the amount that we spent to bring those customers in in the first place that helps us understand how that uh, revenue will translate into profitability. And if we can make those predictions, which is possible for companies that disclose the right customer metrics, then we will do a better job of predicting future sales. And in addition to that, we're going to have a much better sense for the durability or the riskiness of a company's valuation. Because if we know, for example, that a company will generate uh, very consistent sales from existing customers, that those customers are going to keep coming back year after year, I'm going to feel safer about that company than a similar company, which may have exactly the same revenue or profit patterns, but essentially I, I infer that whenever I acquire a customer, I'm going to get an initial shot of revenue, and then that customer will disappear. I won't, I won't see them again. So I'd say that kind of at a high level is, is what we're doing. And it's really, it's been super exciting, obviously, for, for the both of us. <laughs> but uh, it's really, it's kind of taking these models that we've known and loved within marketing and just showing people in finance that, hey, there's some really interesting signal that's contained within these models. So with so, that in mind, I want to ask you just one question to kind of just like flesh out your, your bio and your, your kind of last couple of years of work, then hand things off to Sarah for the, the rest of the interrogation. Uh, so, so Dan, you, you say all this stuff. It, it sounds good. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, we can project this and that and then add it all up. But really? I mean, can you? Does this stuff really work in practice? Tell us about that. Yeah, I'd say that that's where, honestly, Zodiac was... Uh, very happy about having started Zodiac for, for a number of reasons. So, so, but, one of them, but back up and tell us what, what Zodiac uh, was. 
Yes, yeah, so Zodiac is a company that, uh, that you and I had started uh, before Theta Equity Partners, which is our new company focused on customer-based corporate valuation. And it was basically kind of a traditional marketing technology software as a service firm. So take companies, large or small, uh, we'll work with their marketing departments to you know, essentially wave our magic wand, uh, which gives us kind of what we expect customers will do, the you know, number of orders that they'll place, the amount that they'll spend, et cetera and then use that to make more informed, more intelligent customer acquisition, customer retention decisions. So we were typically working with you know, the VP of marketing, you know, the VP of analytics, uh, not necessarily the CFO or the CEO. Uh, and we had done that for, call it a couple hundred companies at the very minimum. Uh, and that allowed us to really build up our understanding of what works and doesn't work what sort of specifications will predict future customer behavior well. And we've essentially been able to kind of leverage all that experience uh, here at Theta by saying, well, you know, we don't have amazingly rich data anymore oftentimes, but we know that we've run this model on 20 companies within the exact same category that may have had a lot more data. And so we know that this modeling framework is highly predictive. Uh, it's allowed us to kind of have the strong prior belief that the model is, is an appropriate one. Well, it's great stuff. And again, I'm, I'm hoping there's going to be some questions about how we do this CLV stuff. What do we mean by it? Uh, how would you leverage it? Uh, so callers, uh, give us a shout at one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. I want to hand things off to Sarah Toms. I'm too close to it. I think Sarah's in a, a better position to, to get the, the best insights out of Dan McCarthy. Sarah? Thank you. Hi, Dan. It's great to speak to you again. It's great speaking with you, too. And it's amazing. What a great, uh, what a great day to be celebrating uh, the launch of the new book. I'm just uh, super excited to actually bring it into my own classroom next year. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. So... Great introduction there about customer-based corporate valuation. Thank you for that. Uh, I was going to ask you the same question. And I really do want to first acknowledge the fact that you and Pete aren't just pioneers in the CBCV space. You're both literally inventing the approach as you're going. And so I was hoping to hear more about some specific examples that you have uh, been able to actually put those models to work and show that going the CBCV approach is going to give you more realistic information about customers and the value of the company? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and it kind of alludes to this point that if we can't offer incremental signal, if we can't do a better job than the traditional methods would have done anyways, then what good is it? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd say you know, one very recent example is a kind of compare and contrast analysis that I did of uh, this meal kit delivery business, Blue Apron. Um, I'm sure um, hopefully many people in the audience have heard of them, but essentially you pay a regular fee, and in exchange they will send you uh, meal kits, you know, which is a whole bunch of, of ingredients that are pre-portioned uh, but are not prepared. And so you, know, you get your box, you open the box, and uh, you use their recipe card to put the meal together. Back in 2016, uh, they were Blue Apron was the market share leader. They had 53% of the market. They were riding high. They were going into their IPO, targeting a $3 billion valuation. And uh, you know, it was back around the time that I had just finished my uh, defending my dissertation. And um, someone had basically asked the question, um, so what do you think? <laughs> and uh, I decided to waste some time uh, and jump into the filing and see see what it suggested for the value of the business. Uh, basically, you know, the big conclusions there were, even though the company disclosed no information at all about their customer retention, uh, if you kind of put together this model for how customers are acquired and retained and make orders and spend, and you just train it on everything that they provided, they gave just enough information to be able to back into their retention curve. And it suggested that approximately 70% of all their customers, after they've been acquired, roll forward the clock six months, they've ended the relationship with the firm. And uh, I didn't go all the way to a formal valuation estimate in the paper, but I did actually do that internally and was coming up with some very 
low stock price estimates. So when they were targeting their IPO, they were looking for a price target of 15 to $17 a share. They ended up having to slash it down to 10 uh, but I was inferring numbers far below that. And when I put this post up on LinkedIn saying, you know, the underlying fundamentals here are not looking so healthy, uh, I got some serious pushback. And you know, here we are, you know, kind of quite, quite a while later. And I've, I've been noticing a lot of 2020 hindsight <laughs> that a lot of people were saying, oh, I could have seen that coming all the way. But, you know, they, they IPO'd at 10, and I had a number of people who told me I was uh, – completely clueless uh, for, for being so cautionary about the firm. Um, so I just I put that out a while ago, and for a, a conference just this past week, uh, there was another meal delivery business that had reached out basically saying, you know, you should check out our numbers. And uh, it's a company called Emails, and they have a very different way of going about the market that I can go into. But essentially, uh, when I ran the exact same sort of model, uh, it inferred that they were almost strictly dominant. You know, they were paying half as much to acquire customers. Their customer retention was twice as good. Their customers were worth uh, a good bit more after those customers had been acquired. And as a result, when you kind of roll it all up, the customer lifetime values were, were very healthy at emails. Uh, and so you know, it was just kind of a point and example as well that you, know, you can get very different conclusions for companies within the within the same vertical, and uh, and I don't think that someone you know, who'd kind of be using the usual measures would have come to those conclusions either of them. So just picking up on what you mentioned there, you know, the difference between Blue Apron versus emails, and then also uh, in your conversation with Pete, where you were talking about at Zodiac, you were really looking at fine tuning the specifications that helped predict the future customer value. Pete and I get a lot, and I'm sure you do as well, Dan. How do how do you amp up CLV? What types of um, investments and predictions can you look at as a company to help, you know, lift your CLV? Do you have any insights from that? It's a great question, and it kind of moves us from the measurement problem of just, you know, let's just predict the future, <laughs> to uh, to the management problem of. You know, how can we make the future better? And uh, the latter question is, that's a much harder question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll admit, as a stats PhD, uh, I try to spend as much time as possible with the first question. Uh, and obviously, in an investment context, it can be extremely relevant that you know, if I end up inferring my prediction suggests a stock price that's way above the then current trading price, I can simply buy the stock, and that's the action that I would take, or vice versa, uh, without needing to do a whole lot of management. Um, I would say Zodiac was focused entirely on the management problem. So, you know, so we have spent some time, a pretty good amount of time, actually, thinking about it. So I would say, you know, being my meek self, uh, thinking about management, I'd say that the easiest use case is on the customer acquisition side that uh, one of the first things that we would immediately do with, with a number of our clients was uh, let's score every single customer and then let's do this exercise of basically running a regression to relate those you know, customer values with the acquisition characteristics of those, those same customers. And can we do anything to find kind of pockets of customers where they just tend to be more valuable and, uh, you know, we would be happy to, to pay a higher price to be able to acquire them because we know that we're, you know, if, if correlation is causation, you know, we should be able to make more money off of them after they've been acquired. But what was kind of perhaps counterintuitive was when we started to do this exercise at Zodiac for a number of clients, uh, we would oftentimes end up paying less to acquire those customers in addition to having them be more valuable. So, uh, but yeah, bigger picture, uh, I think, you know, customer acquisition is a very easy use case because I think everyone immediately understands, you know, the intuition behind that. And, you know, platforms like Facebook have made it easier than ever to, to actually act on it. Pete and I uh, talk a lot about this in the book, the fact that, you know, if you're acquiring an ugly duckling, you're not going to be able to turn them into a beautiful swan. Or if you're thinking about the more traditional 
pyramid, you know, if you have a lead customer, there's very little to do to nudge them up to become platinum, correct? It could be very hard. Now, I would say we have a, um, you know, one of the things that we can do, and I'm, I'm starting to work on this on a separate project, is uh, you know, something you can think of it as a, an A-B test, but for customer lifetime value. And the idea would be, imagine that you had an accurate model for valuing customers, as, as we believe that we do, and you've got certain interventions that you're uh, contemplating making. Then, you know, if you had kind of your proper A-B test regime where you've got a treatment group and a control group, treatment group, you do the action on them, and then just roll forward the clock a few months and then recompute the customer lifetime values, you know, did you get any sort of a lift from that action? And if so, you know, what were the characteristics of the people that you got the lift from? So I'd say, you know, that's probably the closest thing that, that I've, I've seen to, you know, kind of not necessarily turning an ugly ducking into a beautiful swan, but, you know, maybe getting an extra 5% out of, uh, out of an initiative. Um, so, you know, we, we did some of that, but I would say that was, um, you know, that's more trailblazing. So I'd say it was not quite as well adopted as the acquisition use case. And I want to jump on in here and interject. I want to remind the listeners, if you have anything to ask, phone lines are open. Uh, give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. It's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And we actually do have a call right here, Karen from Colorado. Uh, do you have a question for Dan? Yeah, I do. I'm really enjoying the conversation in terms of the company that I work uh, at. Uh, in fact, uh, our CEO was uh, one of your students once upon a time. Um, we happen to sell a luxury good direct to consumer. Uh, ranges in the $150,000 plus, and it's so well made that it is not something that in the five years we've been making it that it has even gone to the secondary market. So we're constantly looking for uh, new customers uh, because no one, uh, you know, they keep it and they don't need another one. Um, is what you're doing uh, something that would be really instructive that, you know, uh, makes, makes us want to buy the book and and uh, dive into this a little deeper. If, so yeah, this is uh, this is my personal take. If you can only sell one of that product to that customer, and then you never see that customer again, then um, then essentially it's all about customer acquisition, kind of by construction, because there's no repeat business. So, so that would be it'd be hard to to use. You know, kind of customer-centric strategies to improve things on the retention side, unless you had a way of creating new repeat revenue streams. Or uh, I think what we're seeing a lot more of these days is if there's some way to convert that initial purchase into, you know, some sort of a subscription offering, you know, where, you know, and maybe it's cloaked as a, a financing plan. Uh, but you know, that way, you know, you could potentially have the opportunity to, you know, receive multiple payments over time and to the extent that you can make product improvements or software enhancements or uh, sell accessories, I could create opportunities to, to upsell that customer. Um, but in general, you know, it's going to create more of a relationship, which perhaps can be you know, very beneficial for both, uh, both your firm and, and for the customer. Um, Dan, speaking of relationships, what do you think about, for a business like this one, uh, referral and the value that referral might bring and understanding which of your customers are, are helping to bring in new referred customers. That would make a lot of Thank sense. You. Yeah, so t to me that would be another example of, you know, kind of exploiting customer acquisition strategies. And certainly, you know, customer acquisition, you know, there's a lot of customer-centric acquisition strategies that, that you could pursue. Um, so I think referrals would be a great example of that. But I think uh, Karen's question, uh, it's, it's a good one because there will be lots of other settings, whether it's a great big ticket item like she was talking about or even something smaller, something that you would never buy more than once. Let's say uh, being you know, an, an old music fan, uh, you know, a, a record album. You know, you're never going to buy that album more than once. So uh, as Dan said, it's going to be pure acquisition at that point. And you know what? Maybe you don't need to read the book. Maybe you don't need to think about customer centricity. Maybe it is all about just volume at that point. So I think that's an important theme. Uh, we don't want to imply that customer centricity is the right strategy for every single company. 
there are some, whether it's because you're selling only uh, one thing or, or for a variety of other reasons, maybe you can't track the customers, why maybe it's not the right strategy for you. But we do want companies to at least think it through, to at least think about the kind of data that they can collect, as Dan said, to think about the kinds of actions they can take to deepen and broaden the relationship, to contemplate how they can grow further customer lifetime value. Uh, I'd, I'd like to believe, and I'm sure Sarah and Dan can comment on this, that every company has an obligation to at least think that through, to run some experiments, to see whether there's lifetime value out there to be created. Again, the answer might be maybe not. We're, we're doing well enough to sell in the one thing that it's not worth our while, but but at least it's a conversation that needs to be had. You're here. Absolutely. And when we think about um, acquisition strategies, Karen, uh, our chapter on acquisition might be very relevant as you think about this, uh, where we are talking about, you know, we, I, we actually use LASIK surgery. Obviously, if things go well, you're only getting that done once, too. Um, and so maybe what you do want to think about is more of a broad approach or approach where you're understanding your current customers and you're targeting other customers just like them and figuring out how to do that in a, uh, you know, in a modern way. But back to the lifetime value and the customer-based corporate valuation. Yeah. Uh, go, go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, so we keep speaking about Zodiac in the past tense, and I'm sure some of our listeners may be scratching their head. Uh, so does Zodiac still exist, Dan? Uh, it still exists within Nike. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the team, the full-time team, uh, they've all moved over to, to being full-time employees of Nike, and uh, obviously a little bit hard for me to comment about uh, what's been going on internally, but, uh, you know, I'd say... It's been very exciting to see, you know, Zodiac 2.0, whatever you want to call it, uh, kind of landing and expanding, you know, within the firm. Uh, so, and obviously, you know, both Pete and myself have been uh, continuing to be a part of that. You know, for us, it's as contractors, uh, but, you know, we've, um, we've definitely been playing a role, too. Wonderful. So Nike acquired Zodiac in March 2018, and... The two of you didn't take too long, but months later, you launched Theta Equity Partners. So can you tell us a bit about Theta and how it's differentiated from what you were doing at Zodiac? Yeah, Theta is it's about customer-based corporate valuation. Uh, so essentially, that was one of the, the use cases that we'd put on some of our PowerPoint decks in a, for Zodiac, but it was never really a use case that we had pursued to any great depth with any of our clients, and you know, I think for that same reason, uh, with Nike as well, it's just not something that they were terribly interested in, and so you know, that was not subject to any sort of a non-compete. And um, and it, the reason why is because you know, essentially we're primarily speaking with, you know, the portfolio manager of XYZ Capital Management, some private equity firm, and it's just a, a very different market that that we've been you know kind of uh, working with. So, you know, primarily what we do, it's, it's still customer-level predictions, but it's not at the individual level. It's really kind of rolling it up and doing exercises, kind of like the one that, uh, that we had talked about with Blue Apron and with emails, where we're just saying, this is the, you know, the retention curve. This is how it's been evolving. You know, these are the unit economics of a firm. And using that to you know, come up with an estimate of the goodness or, or badness of uh, the valuation of a stock. Um, so... Yes, instead of marketing departments, replace it with, you know, portfolio managers and then uh, sometimes with chief financial officers and with CEOs. Uh, so we have worked with some companies directly. It's primarily been, you know, imagine that you're going up to do your next funding round or you're considering strategic alternatives or you're considering disclosing uh, metrics that might make you look good. And I'd say that's been a... You know, one promising use case that you know, we're, we're exploring as well. In each of those cases, it could be very helpful to know, you know what a model like this would suggest uh, the value of your firm is worth. If it suggests that uh, you know, the health of your business is very good, then that would be great material to put in a pitch deck to you know, sell yourself to, uh, to prospective investors. So I'd say that's the sort of thing that, that we've been spending a lot more of our time with now. 
So, so Dan, I want to ask you, uh, you, you know, for me as a marketing professor, the idea of customer-based corporate valuation was, was always a dream until you came along to fulfill it. Um, so what's the dream now? As Sarah said, uh, you know, we're, and you, are, are, are inventing or are pioneering a lot of these methods. Now that we've kind of established their legitimacy, what's, beyond just doing this over and over and over again, what's the next big hurdle? What's the, the big wow accomplishment that lies ahead? Yeah, I think the two things that I firmly believe we'll see in the future, one is that customer-based corporate valuation will will become as boring as discounted cash flow valuation is today. <laughs> it's just going to be just how you do it. And so it's not even worth saying, you know, even using the phrase. It's just how people do the valuation for firms like these. Uh, so, you know, obviously, you know, we're starting to see more and more companies look at customer-based corporate valuation. We now have uh, one company that you know, is literally publicizing the results of a customer-based corporate valuation in a press release. Uh, but you know, fast forward 10 years, and it's just going to be what you see in investment banking reports. It's what, what you see in sell-side equity research. It's just what you always tend to see. So that would be a great thing to see. Uh, the second thing that would be wonderful uh, would be seeing more public companies disclosing measures like this and perhaps even going so far as to getting some sort of a push from the regulators, you know, say the, the Securities and Exchange Commission, that they either mandate the disclosure of certain metrics for certain firms or that they recommend them. You know, that uh, To the extent that this information is informative for investors, these firms should, be, they should feel a push to disclose them. And maybe it's that we see that push coming from their investors, that they have large shareholders that would really like to know these numbers, that they are able to encourage them as well. So wherever the, the pressure is coming from, whether it's shining firms within the industry, the investors, the regulators, let's see hundreds of companies disclosing uh, these measures on a very regular basis. Thank you, Dan McCarthy. So great for you to take time to join us. Go trick-or-treating with Amaya the Pirate right now. Uh, listeners, you want to link in with Dan McCarthy or follow him in on at D underscore M-C-C-A-R. We're going to talk more about that, but first we're going to take a break. This is Marketing Matters on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 